Welcome to Oikos. So we are wrapping up the book of Acts. This is our last series. Are you all excited? So glad you're excited. Just hold it in. Hold it deeply within. All right, so we're in Acts chapter 27, and today we've got quite a few verses. So if you want to open up your Bibles, you can go ahead and do that, or your, you can get on your smartphone or your iPad or whatever, and go to Acts chapter 27. I'm going to, this story is significant, and one of the reasons why it's so significant is it displays how Luke is this awesome historian. And as we started out Acts two years ago, we talked about Luke and his incredible, very factual recording of what happened with Jesus in his life. So when we look at the Gospel of Luke, we see the life of Jesus recorded accurately. In fact, when they try to disprove his writings, when they go into the archaeological digs, they find out that he's actually 100% right. So they'll think that something didn't occur in a place, and then they'll dig up that site, and then they'll see, no, that's exactly what happened. And so Luke is this historian that is really, there's no historian in antiquity that really can measure up to his writings. Um, Chapter 27 in Acts actually displays this even more so. See, Luke was, uh, do you guys remember what kind of trade he What was his trade? He was a doctor. Now, not like, he wasn't like an ENT or, you know, he didn't have a specialty. Doctors back in those times, they just tried whatever they could. They learned a lot about the body and they did whatever they could. Um, So it wasn't like he went to a medical school or something, but he would have, in a sense, done the same thing that he was doing with Jesus and Paul is he walked alongside of them, he would have been discipled into that trade. So he probably was under someone else who could heal others and had proven to be healed or heal others. And Luke walked alongside of them shoulder to shoulder, was discipled by them, and he became a doctor. But that didn't mean that he understood anything with being a sailor. And in chapter 27, we see him record some very specific things about what you do when a storm happens. And so as we get into this chapter, I just want to compare and remind you all that his writing is so accurate that they would say that he was more or gave more detail into this chapter, chapter 27, than Homer did in the book, The Odyssey. How many of you read the Odyssey in high school? How many of you remember it? I love that book. I thought it was awesome. However, Homer was, they just thought he was this great writer who recorded history. But Luke did even more detail within the sailing and how you take care of a ship than Homer did. He does more than Jonah in the Old Testament. And Jonah, you know, he did a lot of traveling. And so as we get into this chapter 27, I want you to kind of narrow in on some of those details. But there's something specific that stood out in the text today, and we're going to get into that in just a little bit. Verse 1. When the time came, we set sail for Italy. 
Now remember, Paul had just gone through defending his faith, and the last few chapters, that's really all he was doing, is defending that he was a Roman citizen and that he should be able to face trial. He gets that request granted to him, and they set sail for Rome. Paul and several other prisoners were placed in the custody of a Roman officer named Julius, a captain of the Imperial Regiment. Verse 7, we had several days of slow sailing, and after great difficulty, we finally neared Sidness. But the wind was against us, so we sailed across the Crete and along the sheltered coast of the island past the Cape of Salomon. We struggled along the coast and with great difficulty finally arrived at Fair Havens near the town of Lycia. We're skipping on to verse 9. We had lost a lot of time. The storm was coming. They had switched ships at this time. They believed there was about 276 people on board. The first ship that they were on was just a coastal ship. The second ship was much larger, obviously, to hold that many people. And so they began sailing again. The weather was becoming dangerous for sea travel because it was so late in the fall, and Paul spoke to the ship's officers about it. What's pretty cool, and we didn't plan this, is that it was about this time when this was recorded in the year. It's around October. So in the months of October, November, December, January, you don't sail in the Mediterranean because the tempests or the storms within the sea were too dangerous. So people would seek shelter during that time. Men, Paul said, I believe there's trouble ahead if we go on. Shipwreck, loss of cargo, and danger to our lives as well. Verse 11, but the officer in charge of the prisoners listened more to the ship's captain, makes sense, and the owner than to Paul. Paul had no authority on the ship. Remember, he was a prisoner. And yet he still had the courage, though, to say, I think we're heading towards danger, and I believe you should listen. Verse 12, but since Fair Havens was an exposed harbor, a poor place to spend the winter. Most of the crew wanted to go on to Phoenix, farther up the coast of Crete, and spend the winter there. Phoenix was a good harbor, with only a southwest and northwest exposure. When a light wind began blowing from the south, the sailors thought they could make it, so they pulled up anchor and sailed close to the shore of Crete. But the weather changed abruptly, and a wind of typhoon strength called the Northeaster burst across the island and blew us out to sea. The sailors couldn't turn the ship into the wind, so they gave up and let it run before the gale. We sailed along the sheltered side of a small island named Kata, where great difficulty we hoisted aboard the lifeboat, lifeboat being towed behind us. Then the sailors bound ropes around the hull. Here are the details that are rarely found in this writing at this time of history of the ship to strengthen it. They were afraid of being driven across the sandbars of Sirtis off the African coast. So they lowered the sea anchor to slow the ship and were driven before the wind. Verse 18, the next day as gale force winds continued to batter the ship, the crew began throwing the cargo overboard. If you can kind of get a sense here of what's going on in the middle of this journey. And I think some of us 
you can kind of lose sight of this because you're just thinking about a ship in the sea and it's about a journey that doesn't really relate to me. But I think you can make a connection if you look at your own life journey and you think about those times when you feel like just throwing everything overboard because you don't know what else to do. You've tried this and you've tried that. You've gone this way and you've gone that way. But nothing seems to work. You keep getting battered and all you can think of is that you're going to lose hope. Have you ever been in that position? The terrible storm raged, this is verse 20, for many days, blotting out the sun and the stars until last all hope was gone. Now no one had eaten for a long time. Finally, Paul called the crew together and said, Men, you should have listened to me in the first place and not left Crete. You would have avoided all this damage and loss. But take courage. None of you will lose your lives, even though the ship will go down. For last night, an angel of, of God, to whom I belong and to whom I serve, stood beside me. And he said, Don't be afraid, Paul. For you surely will stand trial before Caesar. What's more, God in his goodness has granted safety to everyone sailing with you. So take courage, for I believe, God, it will be just as he said. We will be shipwrecked on an island. Verse 27, about midnight on the 14th night of the storm, as we were being driven across the Sea of Adria, the sailors sensed land was near. They dropped a weighted line and found that the water was 120 feet deep. But a little later, they measured again and found it was only 90 feet deep. At this rate, they were afraid we would soon be driven against the rocks along the shore. So they threw out four anchors from the back of the ship and prayed for daylight. Then the sailors tried to abandon the ship. They lowered the lifeboat as though they were trying to put out anchors from the front of the ship. But Paul said to the commanding officer and the soldiers, you will all die unless the sailors stay aboard. So the soldiers cut the ropes to the lifeboat and let it drift away. I hope you're seeing in this story, I love this story, by the way. I hope you're seeing in this story that when Paul first spoke, he had no authority and no one listened. The moment they started to recognize that he was a messenger of God, they started to listen, and everyone obeyed. Verse 33, just as day was dawning, Paul urged everyone to eat. You have been worried, so worried, that you haven't touched food for two weeks, he said. Please eat something now for your own good, for not a hair of your heads will perish. Then he took some bread, gave thanks to God before them all, and broke off a piece of it and ate it. I hope that kind of reminds you of something that we do here called the Lord's Supper. Although historically, I don't think that's what happened here. But he did still represent the kingdom while he shared a meal with them. It's something that we can do in our own homes whenever someone comes in. Is that we don't change who we are and this is exactly what Paul does. He doesn't change who he is. He's a messenger of God. So he urges them because of his pastoral love for them. These 276 guys 
Both he and Luke are on board. So 274 guys probably don't know who Jesus is. But Paul remains steadfast as a messenger of God and gives thanks for the food that he's been given and reminds them that this is his God who will save them. Verse 38, after eating, the crew lightened the ship further by throwing the cargo cargo of wheat overboard. Everybody enjoy that story? I I thought I could have condensed it more, but I thought it was important that we just went through all the details. But for today, what we're going to focus on is verses 21 through 26. So I'm just going to come back to this verse here in verse 21 for us to just look and see what Paul is trying to say to these 274 people. And I believe even encouraging his fellow companion, Luke, who's recording all these events. Verse 21, no one had eaten for a long time. Finally, Paul called the crew together and said, men, you should have listened to me in the first place and not left Crete. Now, when he says that, you may have thought he's going like, na 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 I don't think that's the reference in this text. This is a word of love. It's not, I told you so. It's, listen to the one who knows what you need. Man, you should have listened to me in the first place and not left Crete. You would have avoided all of this damage and loss. But take courage. None of you will lose your lives, even though the ship will go down. Such an oxymoron, but this is what he says. For last night, an angel of God, to whom I belong. I want you guys to just focus on this. This is his word to 274 people on board the ship. But take courage, none of you will lose your lives. For last night an angel of God to whom I belong and to whom I serve stood beside me. And he said, don't be afraid, Paul, for you will surely stand trial before Caesar. What's more, God and his goodness has granted safely to, safety to everyone sailing with you. So take courage, for I believe God, it will be just as he said but we will be shipwrecked on an island to God to whom I belong. That's the phrase I want us to focus in on today. To the God to whom I belong. It isn't about, he doesn't tell them about a God who is just out there. He doesn't talk about a powerful God. He doesn't talk about the God who will save you. He talks about a relationship. This isn't a a God who doesn't know who Paul is. This is a God who literally owns Paul. Paul is his bondservant. Paul is his slave. Paul welcomes that terminology as well. Because it's in that bondservanthood, that bondservanthood, I don't know if that's a word, but I just made it up, bondservanthood, that he is able, that he is able to recognize that everything comes from his master. And it's all good. Now, we have a hard time with that kind of language, right? Submitting, 
releasing our freedom and saying, I am a slave. I think Americans in particular, when I think about that terminology, we have a hard time with it because we have seen the tragedy of slavery. And it's in our history books. And we still deal with it today. And that's why it's hard for us to go, ooh, being a slave is a good thing. Being a slave is a good thing if you have a good master. And we are all slaves to something. Either we're slave to some desire that is not good, or we're a slave to our job, or we're a slave to our family, or we're a slave to our spouse, or our child, or a friend. Do you guys get this? Are you getting this? Okay. So God asks us, who will you be a slave to? And our response is, to you, O Lord, to you alone. And this is what Paul is saying here. He belongs to the Lord. And he talks to these 274 sailors who may or may not know who this God is. And he gives them a full description and he pulls it from probably Psalm 24. Psalm 24 says this, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all its people belong to him. Right there is a huge invitation to these 274 guys who think their life is on the line. He's telling them, though I belong to this Lord, so do you. Will you recognize it? For he laid the earth's foundation on the seas and built it on the ocean depths. See, the sailors probably do not know who their shepherd is. They may never have heard Jesus on the sermon on the mount. They may never have heard the words of Jesus spoken into their hearts. They may never have even heard that Jesus was their shepherd. Or that they belong to anyone other than themselves. But Jesus says this about those who belong to him in verse 37 in John chapter 6. However, those the Father has given me will come to me and I will never reject them. The promise from Jesus when you say, I'm a slave of God. And why don't we say that? I'm a slave of God. The promise to Jesus the moment that you say that is that he will never reject you. He doesn't look at how good you are. He doesn't look at your moral success or failure. He doesn't determine whether you're a good husband or a bad one. He doesn't determine or make his judgment on you on whether or not you read his Bible every day or you pray fervently every day. He simply says, when you are mine, I will not reject you. And that's the gospel. 
that's the other side of this is the lie that Satan tries to have us buy into. Is that, no, you're not really his. Remember? Remember what you did yesterday? You're not really his. Remember how your, your parents said that wasn't good? That's why you're not his. Remember how you treated that person yesterday? That's why you're not his. But Jesus says, those who the Father has given me, I will never reject them. That means there's a place for you, no matter what you did yesterday. That's grace. There's a place for you, no matter what you do tomorrow. Because our Savior says he'll never reject us. We are given to Jesus the moment we believe that he's the Savior. So Paul's giving an invitation to these 274 guys who are on this ship trying to save their own lives by saying, God will save you. Recognize him as your owner, as your master, and you will be saved. Because the Savior that I know will never reject you. And guess what? You're already his. Jesus knows us because we belong to him. As a good shepherd, the shepherd always knows his sheep. And so he knows us by name. He knows us by the way we look. He can recognize when we are out of the fold. How many of you guys are shepherds? Because some of this terminology may not make sense. He'll recognize us when we're out of the group. So you may think on those days when you know you need to be with Jesus and his people, the, the group, and you decide, oh no, I think, I think it'd be better if I just was alone. Jesus calls you back and says, this is your, this is your group. Don't depart from the group. A shepherd will know you by name and he'll call you in those moments when you go, you know, I shouldn't even come to church or come to that missional community because my life is messed up right now. And these people in that group, they're all good and nice and they pray all the time and they read their Bible and I just don't fit in. Is that true? Do you tell yourself that? Do you tell yourself that? Yeah, you do. Because I hear you, you've told me that before, that, well, I don't feel comfortable. And another way of saying I don't feel comfortable is because I don't feel like I'm aligned with those I'm going to go spend time with. That's when you don't feel comfortable, right? When you're invited to a party and you're not aligned with those people and you feel like you're going to be the odd one out, is that a party you want to go to? But what Jesus says in his word is that I have made you. I have made you to fit in. 
It's not about what they've done. It's what I've done for you. And that's what we all have. That's our unity together. None of us in this room, not me here right now, or Annalise right there, or David in the back, none of us are more righteous than someone else. The reason why we have unity is because we believe in a God who sent his son that would say to us, I will not reject you. And he's invited us to follow. So what does it look like to not belong to him? Matthew 7, verse 21 through 23 says this, Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name, performed many miracles in your name. But I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. So Paul speaks to the crew not only about the God to whom he belongs, but also to the God whom he serves. So the question for us this week, if you believe that God has called you and you believe in him, and you believe he said those words, I will not reject you, are you serving Jesus with your life? Are you serving Jesus with your life? A person who's been called into the family serves the one who's called them in. They don't serve first to get in. They get called in and they serve. Are you serving Jesus with your life? So what does it mean to serve Jesus? Really, we can think of a lot of things. Like, let's just shout some of those things out. What do you think it means to serve Jesus? Come on, we're... Tell others about him. What else? Love others. What else? Be humble. Just shout it out. Come on. What else? There's a lot. Come on. Aaron. Thank you, Ileana. Are you serving Jesus in your life? What does it mean to serve him? Paul, I think, in this story, gives a great example of what it means to serve. Remember his condition. He was in prison. And with the Jewish authority, he was condemned to die. The only thing that saved him was his Roman heritage. And because of this, he was able to go to Rome to have a trial. Now, with no expectation on whether or not he would come out of that trial alive or not, in fact, he had a pretty good sense from the prophets that spoke that this would bring his death. So he knew this was kind of the end. Paul was not in any authority on the ship, but he decided to serve Jesus by saying, your lives are in danger. 
And God cares about you, so don't move on. But they chose to anyways. And then he reaffirmed that when they started listening and going, I think this guy maybe have something, maybe a connection here. Maybe he'll save our life. They start to listen to him. But with no authority, no human authority, he represents the kingdom regardless of whatever circumstance he finds himself in. Whether it's in chains on a ship or in chains in a prison or beaten on the, on the road or within a city almost to death, he chooses to continue to be God's messenger. He speaks for God. He continues to listen and follow these words of Jesus. This is from Matthew 28, 18 through 20. I'm sure you know this well. Jesus came and he told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Paul does this because he doesn't look at the 274 soldiers or sailor men on this ship and say, I'm not sure if you are worthy. He looks at them as children of God who have the potential, if they believe, to be a disciple. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you and be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Paul teaches these 274 about who God is. Even though it doesn't mean his freedom will come out of it. In fact, he has a chance to be free and he chooses not to. Because he knows that God has placed him in this time, in this place, to be in a shipwreck. And all he can believe in is that the Lord has told him he'll be saved and they will continue on to Rome, where he'll be tried and most likely be put to death. Unwaveringly, he moves forward because he believes that God has given him a mission to complete. And that's to simply tell others that Jesus is our Savior and our Lord. So Paul belongs to Jesus, and he serves Jesus. Those two things go together. You cannot belong to Jesus and not serve him. You cannot. So if that question, are you serving Jesus with your life, that should propel each of us to review our life and say, am I willing to let God be my master? Am I willing to acknowledge that he is? Because he already is. And am I willing to let my life be his as I serve him? Because I belong to him and I serve him. He is my God, whom I serve and whom I belong. May we belong to Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have spoken to us today in this word, this story from Luke, as he writes about the history of the early church. We ask that as we look at this story that we don't get lost in the details, but we see that um, it's an accurate story 
that it's something that you were willing to send Paul out and face danger, not just to test him, but so that others, so that your people, your creation, could recognize that you are God. Lord, we pray that we would be followers of Jesus as we follow the actions of Paul. May we be willing to stay in a circumstance, even a, a bad storm in our life, and look for ways to represent you. Because you are our God. We are yours. And it's because of you we can serve. So help us to make that bridge, Lord. Help us not to become the people who just shout out, Lord, Lord, and know that Jesus doesn't know us. Help us to be the people who belong to you and serve you. In your name we pray. Amen.